my name is Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and this is going to be a belated look at the April releases from the Criterion Collection. I do need to apologise for the delay in getting these shows out. Normally I hope to do them on the last day of every month but last month I was having some, I suppose, uh, I suppose the... Um, word for it might be a few issues so to speak and I wasn't able to let alone watch any films or also record a podcast episode but please report that those kind of problems are now behind me I'm not one of these who likes to air my dirty laundry all over Facebook as I know a lot of people seem to like doing but suffice to say um things are back to normal now and I'll be able to record some episodes and get some more material out onto the feed so without any further ado, I will get on with the new April spine numbers. And I need to begin with a little bit of a cop-out, actually, because the first spine number of the month was number 607, which was a compilation release of a guy called Hollis Frampton, and the release was called a Hollis Frampton Odyssey. Now, I was originally quite excited by this release because... Um, it, Hollis Frampton I'd never heard of before this package came out and I sort of did a little bit of background research on him and I could see that he was kind of quite similar to some of the other releases in the Criterion Collection, mostly the Brackage stuff and um, the Science is Fiction release and I was hoping that I would really be able to watch these films and his work and sort of kind of formulate some intelligent or indie, well not I suppose not even intelligence, some um, observations about his work that may have been of interest to you. And the discs arrived, I chucked them in, and I have got to be brutally honest with you, it wasn't that I didn't like what I was seeing, it was the fact that I don't honestly think I would be able to record anything that really made any kind of sense, because these are films which are... The type of thing you will see as installations in art galleries, and indeed that's probably you know the uh, main place in which they were shown. And for example, there is a film on the disc called Lemon, which is seven minutes essentially of a shadow passing over a lemon. Now, I could try and sort of uh, talk about what I thought about it, but to be brutally honest with you, at this precise moment in time, all I could sort of offer on the subject was the fact that it was a seven minute film about a shadow passing over a lemon. Make no mistake though, these films are quite, it's just that I don't really think I was quite prepared for the fact that this is, I mean, this is film that is art and I mean we kind of, you know, we, we talk about films being an art form but this really is what I associate, what I think we associate more commonly with being art in the traditional sense. And it's not really, I, I don't want to sound like a complete kind of um, Luddite here, but although I like art, I'm not a massive connoisseur of it. I don't really know the respective movements. I went to um, an Andy Warhol kind of exhibition and I have to be honest with you, I was sort of just sort of sat there, I thinking, no, no, it's okay, it's quite nice to look at, but I don't really kind of appreciate it on the level that many people do, and as such, I think sometimes it's best not to say anything, really, when you don't have anything to say, and this might be a, a, a kind of an avenue I want to explore a lot more in future, I guess, but for the moment, anyway, I just think I'm going to leave this kind of Hollis Frampton um, package and just really kind of talk about really what you get, which is over 
just under shy, I think, of four hours of his material and interviews and stuff like that. And I think if you were interested in his work, this would be a must-buy, really. And even if you, know, you have an interest in kind of modern art, I guess it would be worth seeking out. But to me anyway, I think I'm just a little bit alienated from it, and I don't really want to kind of get uh, too overboard and uh, really kind of risk... Um, harping on about something that I don't really know a great deal about. But it is interesting when the Criterion Collection do this with releases because, as I said, they have done it before with the Brackage stuff and things like that. And I, I think it's good because, obviously, we're in the age now where um, lots of kind of filmmakers and films in general are being lost with the various format changes. And stuff like this kind of keeps those things out there and uh, hopefully gives them a bit more longevity. But... I will leave it there with the Hollis Frampton stuff. It's um, a two-disc edition if you buy the normal DVD. It's a single Blu-ray. Um, picture quality is... It's not great, to be brutally honest with you, because I think a lot of these films are made on 16mm, and they are kind of... He was trying out various type of effects, like time-lapse and stuff like that. So there's quite a lot of kind of dust and noise on the films. Sound, for the most part, is mono. Um, I actually thought I was having a problem with my... Uh, home cinema receiver when I put it in because for the, for, for the first like 20 minutes of the first disc is absolutely no uh, sound whatsoever but overall it looks good where the, where there is sound it does sound quite clear and if you are a kind of fan of Hollis Frampton's work uh, please let me know your thoughts about him and why I should kind of be uh, sort of slightly more interested than I actually am. That's not to say I'm not interested because I don't, uh, I, I, I'm ignorant as to this type of thing. It's just the fact that at the moment, as I said, I don't really have the kind of the motivation to explore its work. But if you are a fan, please do get in contact. Uh, let me know uh, what you think of this package as well. And it might be kind of interesting to hear someone who has a slightly deeper appreciation of it than I do. Now, the next spine number was supposed to be 608, which is Harold and Maud, but the release of this was actually put back till uh, June so I'm going to hop on to Criterion 609 which was Robert Young's Alambrista. 1977 was a pretty good year for cinema one way or the other. Of course there was a small film called Star Wars that came out, there was a pretty great remake by William Freakin of The Wages of Fear called Sorcerer and you can by the way check out my episode on that and I would also recommend checking out the Midnight Movie Cowboys episode on that, in which they compared it to The Wages of Fear. I think it's fair to say the 70s are my favourite time period for film, especially American cinema. There are so many gems. And occasionally, as in the case with Alan Brister, which, by the way, is translated as The Illegal, there is more gold to be found from this period of cinema. Now, the director of the film is Robert M. Young, and before he made Anne Brister, he was primarily involved in making documentaries. I have to be completely honest with you, I have never seen any of his films other than Anne Brister, apart from the documentary that is actually included on this disc, which I'll get to in a bit. But he's a name definitely I've heard of before, but I've certainly never seen any of his work. Now, the script for the film was largely improvised and it was produced by Michael Hausman who was a who still is actually a prolific um, commercials and music video producer. It was made with a tiny crew of 10 men and it follows the story of a young husband and father called Roberto who leaves his wife and newborn baby behind in Mexico to find work in America. 
He soon learns the reality of the land of opportunity, meeting a variety of people who shape his outlook on his life before he makes a monumental and profound discovery. The film stars Domingo Ambriz as Roberto, Trinidad Silva as Joe, and Ned Beatty as Angelo, and there is also an appearance from a very young and completely different looking Edward James Olmos, who, if you do see the film, um, I want someone to explain to me how big Edward James Olmos' mouth is in this. It is, it's unbelievable. It's like, I don't know, he's got, he seems to have more teeth than the Jackson 5. But anyway, that's just a kind of a, a quick side note there. Because Alan Brister, as I said, is a film that I have never seen before. And until, when I, when I actually saw it was going to be announced in the Criterion Collection, I normally kind of look up some of the titles I haven't heard of. I didn't even bother for this for some reason. And... I was really struck by how, not only how moved I was by the film, but how resonant it still is today. Because obviously at the centre of this film is the theme of illegal immigration. And it is a subject which really never goes away. And I'm from a part of England called Kent, which is in southern England, which is really the first port of call for a lot of illegal immigrants coming into Britain. And what you tend to find is that illegal immigration brings out the very worst in people. Firstly, there is racism. And unfortunately, uh, Kent is one of those places where, just to give you kind of an idea of the kind of the diversity of Kent, I went to a school, a secondary school from the ages of 11 till 18, and what there were two and a half thousand students in that entire two and a half thousand students, there was one Asian student and two black students, and that is it. And it kind of breeds a narrow mindedness. And really in the kind of the mid to late nineties to the present, there was a an explosion of immigrants coming into Britain, mostly from the former Yugoslavia. And people in Kent come up with the most ridiculous statistics and apparent facts about these people that are so moronic, they are actually embarrassing. And as I said, really, they kind of just disguise this borderline racism. But there is a kind of a, I suppose, a, a vicious circle to it, because invariably these people end up in places where they are exploited. There's a lot of um, things like strawberry fields and apple orchards and stuff like that in Kent, hop fields. And basically, these people are really have to work for absolutely nothing and they become a kind of political weapon as well whoever is in opposition can start waving around statistics often as well these statistics are completely unfounded they can say on the basis that three illegal immigrants were arrested at a apple farm then that must mean that there are oh i don't know twenty-five thousand a week finding their way over the borders and stuff like this and the media as well jumps on the bandwagon. There is a pitiful newspaper in England called the Daily Mail. It normally has two types of headlines. One is normally about Princess Diana. They just seem to be totally obsessed with her still, even after all these years. And their second one is immigration. And all you need to do is read one of their headlines about immigration just to see the absolute nonsense that they are going on about. For example, there was a, a classic case a couple of years ago where I was reading a copy of the mail and it had a frightening statistic 
that a high portion, possibly even 60% of all illegal immigrants coming into this country have serious criminal records. There was absolutely nothing to back this up in terms of evidence. There was no sources quoted. It was just based on the fact that that was what they had decided was going to be enough to sell a few newspapers to scare people. And unfortunately, it does work because one of the things about people in Kent is they quote these incredible statistics at you. I, I have heard things like people say, well, 75% of them have tuberculosis. 80% of them are only here for the benefits. 92% are probably going to be thieves as soon as they get here. It's absolute total bollocks. And it does. it's one of those kind of issues that does irritate me. Now, obviously, one of the things that you um, get levied with when you kind of speak out against time is you're this kind of like lefty who just thinks that the borders should be open. I don't think that at all. However, I don't... I, I find that when these types of debates come up, what invariably happens is that people are reduced to mere statistics, some true, a lot of them false. And what you actually lose sight of is the fact that these are real people who are desperately poor and completely deluded as to what they think they are actually going to get when they get here. And what I really enjoyed about Alan Marissa is that it actually humanises these people. It actually gives them an identity, a personality. Roberto is, I suppose at worst you could say he's incredibly naive, possibly even a little bit stupid. But when we see him at the beginning of the film with his wife and child, his reasoning for wanting to go over the border is because he wants to give them a better life. And really, that I think that is a fundamental desire that we can all relate to we want to do the best for our families and how it manifests itself is completely different because if you are essentially living in poverty and you hear kind of wonder stories of people in the next country next to you earning a fortune and sending it back to the families of course there is going to be a very very big pull to decide to go and jump across the border and see if you can get work for yourself and the problem itself is almost kind of self-sustaining because there is a need for cheap labour. And one of the kind of the, the things that happened last year during the riots was there was a lot of these absolute moron rioters on the news afterwards saying that all the immigrants had got their jobs. But I kind of wondered at the time what jobs they were actually applying for, because I've worked um, as a strawberry picker before. And one of the reasons why on the farm I was working on, there were so many people who were working who didn't have the necessary papers to do so was because that no one wanted to actually do these jobs. I was doing it because I was 16 and I wanted a bit of pocket money. But most people kind of turn their noses up at the manual labour that is needed. And when I kind of talk manual labour, I'm not sort of talking about kind of working on the roads and things like that. This is you know, on your hands and knees picking fruit. So there is a gap in the market as it were for these types of workers which of course a lot of people are willing to exploit for profit crucially then roberto is there to serve a need but he has absolutely no rights and i think the kind of the treatment of immigrants really kind of does make you look at your own country because there was an incident a few well actually last year in which a boatload of immigrants from north africa um, got lost in the Mediterranean or I think their boat broke down the Mediterranean and basically all the countries now are blaming each other for the fact that most of them actually died in fact I think all of them died and 
it kind of horrified me a little bit because I was I, I was thinking, you know, I think Italy one of, is one of the countries that's coming in for the most criticism. And I sort of thought to myself, I wouldn't really be very happy as a citizen of that country knowing that the border authorities in my own country had basically let a boat full of women, children and men simply flounder at sea and then the entire crew die of starvation and dehydration. I think it's kind of slightly disgusting. But Young, I think, really portrays a very even balanced view of this subject. His film, which is included on the disc, is called Children of the Field, and it takes a look at essentially, obviously, kids working in the fields and the kind of life that they have. And he takes this visual style and puts it into Alan Bristow because it has a very kind of docudrama look to it. It's a kind of road movie of sorts, but from a very different perspective. It was shot on the fly and it shows, and I think the only other filmmaker who I've seen who I can really kind of compare it to in my own knowledge is Peter Watkin. Again, I did a episode on one of his films, the very first episode of the 24 Frames cast, when I had a look at his film, The War Game. And he is a director who, he strives for a kind of realism in his films which a lot of kind of directors go to great lengths to avoid it has manifested itself in recent years in this kind of shaky cam technique and i i don't really kind of i'm not going to kind of get into that debate again but his films literally look like there is someone a documentary crew there filming what are for the most part fictional exchanges and young has a very similar style there is a handheld aesthetic he gets right down into the action with Roberto and he has a very economical way of directing you don't get many um, big establishing shots or any kind of wide vistas he seems more interested in just what the characters are doing so it's it's quite strange because at the weekend I saw Prometheus which is all about these kind of wide vistas and setting the scene and instead when I, I watched uh, Alan Brister straight afterwards actually and I was kind of amazed because it was just suddenly this um I suppose the kind of the complete lack of grandioseness to it, it just kind of gets stuck straight in there and gets right in with Roberto, even to the point where you get some kind of like POV work when he's trying to get away from the police. And there's some really kind of um, incredible kind of kineticness to the way in which some of the sh the, the uh, scenes are shot, especially some stuff that was filmed on a train where you kind of see the tracks underneath. And as I understand, I think that was actually just young who got on a train in uh, New York and then as soon as the guard had gone, just stuck his camera basically underneath the train. But it really does kind of work. It does have this kind of quite, um, well, I suppose in the, in the first reason, really, it's actually very kind of quite scary to see. But there's some brilliant little moments in the film. For example, you see this kind of this wide shot of the uh, the fence that runs along the border. And it looks quite imposing with its kind of barbed wire on top of it. And then the next thing you see, you just see Roberto and a few other guys just run straight through it. And it's quite kind of ironic, isn't it? You have this kind of this big structure which is designed to keep people out. And like a lot of these types of things, they are more for show than they are really kind of serving any kind of practical purpose. And I, I also think, you know, perhaps it is, in a way, it's a, I suppose it does kind of show the kind of the ridiculousness of the way in which the border works, if it is so easily penetrable. But there's a few other moments where I think you sort of see that Young is a director who certainly kind of knows how to evoke a certain emotional truth from his scene, 
part of kind of Roberto's journey is he meets this young mother called Sharon, who he doesn't speak any English, by the way, as well, Roberto. He, um, although the actor playing him does, they actually play, he just kind of speaks Spanish. So the world around him does seem very foreign, but there's a brilliant moment where he kind of shacks up with this woman called Sharon. He does start sleeping with her and she helps him to wire some money back to his family. But as he's kind of filling in the forms, a woman in the bank is speaking to him in Spanish and she realises through the forms that he's filling in that he's actually sending the money back to his wife. And there is an expression on his face and it, it's, it's good because Young doesn't kind of build the scene up. He just lets it play out completely naturally. And you just see this woman's face begin to react to the news that Roberto isn't single and the fact that you know potentially she does have a young baby we don't find out anything that happens about the father or anything like that but you sort of realize the emotional hurt and damage this is actually being done and likewise Roberto is this fish out of water because there's a moment where he goes with Sharon to see a preacher and it is one of these kind of real kind of hellfire and brimstone type of preachers who go completely mad and he just sits there with this expression on his face and you can tell that he feels like a foreigner in a foreign country he doesn't understand this culture and obviously i suppose it is a moment where not everyone goes to kind of see preachers like this but you can see that he is trying to kind of digest what this means and it kind of all looks a little bit kind of crazy to him but it's a very unsentimental film. Um, there is a character called Joe who is a sort of veteran of the illegal scene, basically. He even has his own fake green card that he uses to fool the police. And Joe and Roberto try to get on some trains and basically build these kind of like wooden platforms that they can attach underneath the train. And... It's kind of like at, at the beginning of the scene, it sort of starts as this kind of joke. And then as the train begins to speed up, you realise how scary and how dangerous this situation is for them both. And I won't kind of spoil what happens next, but I was quite shocked at just how matter of fact Young is in the way he actually deals with what happens because you absorb it like Roberto does and you kind of you think to sort of react in the same way does you just have to kind of get on with what is going on and overall really I think it's hard to find any kind of criticism with the way in which the actors go about their roles Roberto you do feel this kind of genuine pity for him that he is kind of really sort of seeing his dreams come shattering down around him and when you see him kind of being exploited and having the piss taken out of him you have to be an absolute asshole to kind of take some kind of pleasure in that and this is the thing you know, people when they talk about immigrants they always sort of they, they they like to sort of vilify them and i would defy anyone who to kind of has that kind of view to watch this film and not be kind of moved by what they are seeing there's a brilliant scene where joe is trying to teach roberto how to fit in and basically that you shouldn't order a burrito when you go into a cafe you should always order ham and eggs and they're kind of he's acting out taking the, the um taking the order and kind of trying to get roberto to say the words after him and it's a funny scene but what you kind of realize is that these guys will always be foreigners they will never be accepted and there is the sort of the uh 
the sort of the naive belief in Joe that by doing this he is somehow going to be able to fit in. It's really quite sad to see, and I think the the uh, the actor playing Joe Trinidad Silver was actually a non-professional actor, and he really kind of puts so much. Um, genuine emotion and kind of childlike glee into this role that it's impossible not to like him. There is uh, also Ned Beatty as well who turns up in the film as a uh, farmer and I actually found that a little bit distracting because um, Ned Beatty, I, I, I seem to sort of I just can't get over the fact that he's in Superman and kind of Deliverance and stuff like that and seeing him in this film where you don't recognise any of the actors and it all seems very natural, that did take me out of the thing a little uh, out of the film a little bit, but not to the point where I'd say it was kind of you know, overly detrimental. But what you experience through these characters is really the hardship of what they're living in. And the art direction is completely kind of in keeping with this because they are really almost always in the same clothes. They don't, they literally have nothing other than what's in their pockets. And Joe himself actually lives in a chicken coop. And Again, it comes back to this thing I was talking about earlier when we don't often think of illegal immigrants as being kind of people as such. We sort of, we reduce them to these statistics and just how shockingly horrible living in a chicken coop is. Not yet, it might be perfectly comfortable for Joe, he seems quite happy with it, but the very fact that you have reduced a human to living in a chicken's house, to me it's disgusting. You wouldn't, if, if you found out people on your road were so poor they were living in a chicken coop. You'd be absolutely disgusted. And that is the kind of the reality of the film. It shows this hardship. And you know, there's other scenes where they're living in abandoned cars and buses, which have been kind of moved in and dumped on farms as their kind of quarters. And you, know, you wonder what kind of human being could possibly do that because the film was shot entirely on location. These weren't sets or anything that they made. They actually went out to these farms. Sometimes they actually even got kicked off them by the landowners. But they actually went out and saw how these people were living. And I think there was um, there's one scene where there's a double, de- uh, sorry, a uh, a coach where kind of it houses about ten people. And you just you know you find out these people have been living there for years. And again, you just you just have this real pity for them. But the film's grittiness is really helped by the photography as well because it was shot on 16 millimeter um i think it was probably filmed in the academy ratio it has been stretched to a 69 image on the dvd but the film has a real rough look to it there is a real kind of like a, a heavy layer of grain it does look hot and sweaty um and you can feel i guess the kind of the toil that the characters are going through naturally only being quite a small budget film there's no sort of overly kind of stylized lighting as i understand a lot of the film's um visuals were done in the labs after the film was being processed to kind of give it this slightly more uh, washed out earthy look to it but i just honestly kept thinking about documentaries and when you do see the film children of the fields which is also on the disc if you were to compare scenes from that from what you see in Alan Bristia, I think Young really does achieve a documentary aesthetic that is pretty much spot on. If I was to liken it to any other film that I've seen, I would probably go with a film by Jean Renoir called Tony, which he made in the 1930s, which kind of deals with a very similar theme of people who are economic migrants living pretty harsh lives and that's an absolutely brilliant film as well i can certainly recommend getting hold of it masters of cinema put it out here in the uk and i think you can probably get it imported over because as i understand the disc is region free and 
also strangely enough i i, I had to sort of saw kind of echoes of with Nail and i in it in the kind of the uh, the poverty and sort of living just from day to day that roberto goes on but this version of Alan Brister is actually what Young has recognised as being a director's cut. He has gone back and had the film re-edited by Norman Buckley, who has actually kind of shortened the film. And there isn't an ounce of fat in it. Like I said, it really does kind of like cut from one scene to the next with very kind of little build-up or fanfare. But the biggest kind of aspect of this new director's cut is the film was actually re-scored and it has an absolutely fantastic soundtrack i really really enjoyed it because the the songs that are being sung um kind of they sound like kind of like fairly kind of like traditional kind of spanish sort of jaunty songs but they sort of tell the story of roberto and his journey and i was really really taken with it it was kind of very humorous as well at times i thought and it kind of added a a, a layer of joviality to the film which for such a serious and potentially depressing film i think this kind of kind of bumped it up because when you sort of you look at roberto you do have a lot of pity for him but there's this kind of joyous hopeful soundtrack that i think kind of plays in quite well with the film's ending overall i think it is a very balanced film about a horrible situation no one is any worse than the other the police are not presented as could have been as this kind of evil paramilitary organization they are simply a group of guys who go about doing their job and i think it's a very honest depiction of the events i'm not going to kind of it doesn't spoil anything to say at one stage roberto is caught and sent back to mexico and comes back again and you kind of thought that he might be caught at the end and sent back but that doesn't happen it sort of shows the ease in which the uh, the immigrants are able to come over and there's this kind of like despondent line of them being um ushered through the border back to Mexico but you know for well that after kind of something to eat and a drink they're back over the border again the next day and it doesn't try and kind of invent any solutions to the problem it just basically presents the situation as is and as I understand really the kind of the border of America is still very much one which evokes a lot of debate and a lot of um manpower and resources in policing it and clearly it is you know doesn't really work but I personally think it was a, a certainly a very surprising film. I it's definitely one that I am going to go back to in the future. Um, it doesn't have that many features. There is, of course, the documentary as uh, talking about children of the field. There is an interview with Edward James Olmos, who really kind of just loves this film and talks very fondly about the work of Robert Young. But perhaps the best thing to me was the commentary on the disc, which was between Young and the producer houseman because they really obviously um have a great deal of affection for the film and justifiably i think are very proud of it and you kind of hear about the uh, the story behind its production and it's quite interesting as well because um i'm actually going to be involved in filmmaking soon it's quite interesting when you hear about people who you know just went out there with a 10-man crew one of the things that a lot of people think about when you make films that you need loads of people and if your story is such you don't need loads of people to make the the uh, the film you just need the, uh, the essentials there really to kind of go out and do it and it, in that respect I thought it was very very inspirational overall as well the picture quality is pretty good it has I said it's been enhanced for widescreen um, on the TVs um, nice grain structure it looks very filmy doesn't look like there's been any kind of artificial uh, smoothing or noise reduction which is always good to see and the thing I think I was really impressed with was the sound quality as well um, the obviously the new score and I, I suppose the uh, the sound elements have been cleaned up a lot but it was very kind of clear quite high fidelity 
um, 2.0 stereo sound so so overall a, a pretty decent package and one that I can certainly recommend okay so next up was spine number 610 which is Mario Mancelli's The Organizer made in 1963 The Organizer is an Italian film which very much has its roots in the neo-realism movement. This is a genre or movement I suppose that I really cannot get enough of. I love films made in this style, um, especially my all-time favourite is probably Gio Pontecovo's The Battle of Algiers, but there is something about these films which when I watch them I'm actually kind of disappointed sometimes that they just don't go on for longer because they tend to be so kind of gripping and interesting from so many levels, the story to the kind of the way in which they're made, that there is so much about them if you love film to kind of delve into. And it's one of the things that's kind of really, I'm going to rant about this in the next episode of the 24 Frames cast, but I will, I will kind of touch upon it here, is the fact that I am just gobsmacked sometimes when I kind of go on Facebook groups and kind of blogs and things like that that people just talk about the same films over and over again and the same directors and the same bloody actors and it just gets to the point where I, I want to just post something like just watch more fucking films stop just going back to the same old stuff expand your knowledge and I know it's it's quite snobby to say that and then, you know, I don't obviously assume that everyone would like Italian neo-realism cinema, but for God's sakes, just stop going on about the same crap all the time. Because what you do is, when you get into films like this, is that I think it does broaden your mind. You do suddenly start seeing how directors like Martin Scorsese have been influenced, and it does make you appreciate cinema on a broader level. Now... The film was written by Monselli and two other guys called Age and Scapelli, who I will get to in a little bit. And really, if you're familiar with Italian cinema of that period, you will notice many of the faces. Marcello Mastroni, who plays the Professor Singalia. Um, Renato Salvatore, who plays Raoul. Um, Folco Louis, who plays um, Petuzio. These are all actors who I've, I've seen many of their films before. And, and the film is set in an Italian factory on the outskirts of Turin in the late 1800s. And after one of the factory workers is injured, actually losing his hand in a machine, the factory workers decide that they are going to try and campaign to get better rights. At the moment, they work a staggering 14-hour day. I can just sort of interject here. If someone told me I was working a 14-hour day, I would tell you to fuck off, come back again, and fuck off again. There is no chance on earth that I would be able to do that. And they want better conditions, which they want in the form of a 13-hour day and an hour's lunch break. The group are led by the hot-headed Potassio, who kind of wants to kind of go right through a juggler. And at first it takes a little bit of convincing to the fellow workers that doing this is actually going to be in their best interest. And what they really need is some organisation, which happens in the form of Professor Singalia, who is a Marxist agitator who has come to Turin on train to lead the workers in a revolution. Now, The Organiser is not one of the films which 
I think part of that kind of Italian neorealism uh, movement that is probably one of the most instantly recognisable. You probably, if you were to look it up, it would it'd probably come quite low down the list. And indeed, in some respects, I said making such a period piece um, is quite hard thing to do because the thing about the, the, the nearest films they have an immediacy to them they tend to be set in the present and this one isn't it's obviously set um, you know, um, many years in the past however I think you will recognise certain stylistics from uh, films like the Battle of Algiers and things like that which we'll see in the film and thematically I think what I really enjoyed about the organiser was how kind of still relevant it is today I remember um, a few years ago when I had um, cable, I used to be able to get Fox News and the American Fox News. And it was a constant source of unintentional hilarity to me because you had my two favourite anchormen on it were Glenn Beck, who um, I'm sure everyone in America is very familiar with. If you are in Europe and you haven't heard of Glenn Beck, please Google him or just look him up on YouTube, look up some of his clips. Probably the most fucking stupid person to ever grace a television screen and my second favorite really was bill o'reilly who was i don't know I, I don't know if i've ever wanted to exert physical violence on another human being as much as i did him just an absolute rude obnoxious dickhead but o'reilly was obsessed with socialism and black beck is and is to an extent but kind of socialism as being this thing that will kind of reduce the masses into a kind of 1984 dystopian hell and i remember seeing an episode of i think it was called the o'reilly factor in which he was talking about films which he perceived as being incredibly dangerous and i'm pretty certain the organizer was one of those because i think at the time i think Steven Spielberg may have made a passing reference to the film and O'Reilly jumped on this because if obviously he liked the organiser that must mean he wanted to lead a socialist revolution in the United States because at the core thematic elements of the organiser are socialism, collectivism, workers rights, dignity and solidarity and it's the type of thing which will have extreme Republican Americans shitting their pants, as was the case with O'Reilly. I will try and find the clip and put it up because the actual genuine look of fear on this man's face when he was talking about the film was quite hysterical. And in a way, this is, I suppose, a socialist prehistory of a film because it wasn't until really the end of the First World War that workers across Europe really began to get their voice heard and in a lot of instances actually threw over the autocracies that were in charge of Europe at the time and what you kind of get is a sense that these people are essentially slaves they are totally dependent on the factory for everything in their lives yet they give so much to it and get so very little back and of course in order to better their lives they have to make a sacrifice which is going without pay and essentially begging and borrowing any kind of food that they can you can't help but kind of look at this film and sort of equate it to what is going on across the world at the moment in relation to the financial crisis i think there are sort of parallels between the two currently i think greece at the moment obviously is a country that has had horrific austerity plans um imposed upon it and quite rightly, people are really pissed off. Just this morning, I was reading an article about the hospitals in Greece, whereby they're actually running out of bandages and gauzes, and 
in fact, are really having to um, reassess the way in which they are treating patients. And it's horrendous. And I think rightly, the kind of the kind of the working classes and the, even the middle classes to an extent in Greece um, are incredibly angry about all this. And they are looking to the leaders of the country and the sort of the uh, the economic powers that lay beyond Greece as being the reason for it. And they, you know, they would be right. And, you know, these are the people who are suffering the most because of the foolhardiness of apparently the people who are meant to be running the country. And of course, it makes you ask questions. And I wouldn't be surprised if Greece does reject the bailout terms and essentially says fuck you to the world and tries to begin again. I think it will be equally disastrous no matter what they do. But I can sense, I can I could see the kind of the juxtaposition of their situation and those of the workers in the organiser. And I think one of the things that Mario Monselli does is that he is able to root the film in reality so well because it begins with a series of period photographs showing factory workers from the times and their faces tell various stories they're clearly very tired very hungry miserable some of them are happy some of them are surrounded by families some of them are on their own just staring into the camera and in summary they are human beings who you look at and feel a sense of solidarity with and what the film does is then fade into the fictional world and the transition is completely seamless you instantly begin to believe that the people you are seeing are actual workers living and working in this environment. Monselli doesn't worship these characters, as may have been the temptation. It all seems very natural, the way they kind of go from being downtrodden workers to trying to form their own union. And what I really enjoyed about it is the fact that there is a real sense of equality to it, because you have women who are taking quite a prominent role and they are you know, trying to really, they give as good as they get to the men. And there is one of them who um, is actually, to really escape the poverty, is actually a high class prostitute. And it doesn't really sort of pass judgment on her. In fact, you can kind of, kind of almost understand her decision to do what she has done. But it does feel very honest and real. And the way in which he uses long takes and scenes of dialogue you really get a sense that this these are people who are very familiar with each other because it's kind of quite um the kind of the the exchanges between them are very funny and the kind of put downs that you kind of have when you when you're familiar with people and you know them and you know what makes them tick you're kind of able to kind of tease them in a certain way which is what these kind of characters do it's also kind of the language is quite str um strong which um there's a few you know fucks and shits and stuff like that and i think that's quite interesting for many reasons because I think it kind of gives it well really you don't really get much kind of hardcore swearing in films from that period but also I think it's kind of very honest to the characters you know these are people who are perhaps a kind of a little bit more rough and ready but Monselli I think really kind of injects the film with a kind of a humour both a kind of audible humour in the kind of the way they talk the sort of the songs they sing are quite crude and also in the way in which he kind of shoots scenes when the professor arrives um it's very kind of like a kind of a chaplain-esque sequence where he kind of appears out of a kind of a uh, a compartment on the train looks down and sees a uh, guard coming along the train and then kind of jumps back up and jumps off the other side and it's a kind of a visual that in the context of the film 
works really well. It's a visual gag that in the context of the film works really good. And likewise, the camera has some fantastic kind of movements to it. There's some really great um, tracking shots, some really impressive dolly work. And I'm pretty certain that it kind of um, he was using a, kind of a jib arm in some shots as well because the camera kind of floats in and out of scenes in a way which I thought um, definitely reminded me of the work of Scorsese, which I've kind of mentioned before. And I really I actually found it kind of quite um, inventive in the way in which he did employ the move camera movement. I think perhaps uh, neo-realism might perhaps imply that there is a kind of a shaky cam aesthetic that's going for this kind of documentary look. And I don't actually really kind of think that. And I think the more films you watch from that period, you will see that that isn't the case at all. I think a neo-realism will apply to kind of like the character and the kind of the story than the film's kind of technical merits. He isn't particularly subtle at times. At times, you see um, in the factory at one stage where the workers are kind of falling asleep at their um, stations, and some of the uh, the way in which the actors are kind of obviously kind of receiving their direction, it's literally the kind of the massive yawn and the the uh, very deliberate kind of wilting of heads and things, but. Some of the, uh, I, I guess as well, some of the kind of the film's more kind of slapsticky moments don't work so much. There's a bit where a horseshoe gets thrown out of a window and it smacks someone on the head and it's just a little bit kind of ridiculous. But again, I think you have to sort of kind of um, let those kind of moments go, really. But I think the real, the scene that really sums up the kind of the duality of this film is when one of the workers, Salvatore, asks permission from the um, strike committee to break the picket line and there's an impromptu meeting with the strike committee and the professor and they decide that they are not going to let Salvatore break the picket line. Salvatore has already stated that regardless of what they say he's going to break the line anyway so they decide that he is a scab and must be punished so they sent off, set off to give him a beating. They come crashing through his shack door and are presented by the image of his wife and their children, barely wearing rags at all. His One of the first words out of Patasso's mouth is, is this where you actually live or something worse to that effect? And you can see that basically his shack is essentially cobbled together of bits of wood and mud, tragically enough, to keep the elements out. And his children are half starved. And it's obvious then that what, the reason why he wanted to work is because otherwise these people are likely to die. And they decide that they're going to get let him go to work. And I think it's a brilliant moment because you kind of get both sort of sides of this story. On the one hand, yes, people have got to have their rights. But on the other hand, they've got to eat as well. And what actually happens to Salvatore, I won't ruin it, but the way in which the workers react to it and kind of rally around I think really kind of shows how you know these people are at heart fairly decent you know they don't like to see one of their own and by one of their own he might not be shouting but he's still one of their workers again it's all very socialist and um, uh, communist and obviously if it ever gets to America this type of thing the, the country will just be like 1984 you know you know, listen to Bill Riley you know the guy speaks the truth but what I really love about the organiser the most is how it looks because the director of photography, Giuseppe Rotonio, was has a CV which is quite varied. Um, you have the delights of Red Sonja to the Baron of Munchausen but and also all that jazz. And really 
this is the film's trump card because it looks absolutely beautiful and it's a black and white film but it almost has this kind of like charcoal aesthetic to it with kind of like the the, the whites are kind of washed out they look like they're kind of fading into the background and what you're going to get is an idea of the kind of the filth really that these people live on you know, the kind of the soot of the industrial age it was filmed in 35 millimeter in a 185 aspect ratio and i think the height really works to the locations um advantage because you get this sense of the especially inside the factory of just how these people are being reduced to basically cogs in the machine and they're, they're kind of they're even kind of thought less than the machine which obviously has more worth than they do it did remind me um of other films that kind of, again i kind of go back to the kind of the battle of algiers and there's a sort of a, a beauty in the fact that these films don't look particularly nice you know there are there's a very kind of kind of a harshness and i think i've, I've read um one person described the look of the film as being quite flat and not in a kind of detrimental way but the kind of the image was like um it seemed to have kind of uh there doesn't seem much kind of depth to it I, I don't necessarily agree with that actually to be honest with you i think there is um a depth to the image but it does look i think if you were to take one of these stills um from the film and say this is a picture from the time you wouldn't have any problem believing it which i guess is um a testament just to how effective that it is the film's screenplay is worthy of mention because it's actually written by two guys called Age and Scapelli as well as Monselli. And these people, they actually wrote um, a lot of comedies and I think that's where the kind of the comedic elements of it come from. It was actually nominated from an Oscar and if I was to be a little bit critical of it, I think there are too many characters to an extent. There's lots of subplots and they very have kind of very different shifting tones and it, the film kind of leers from the serious to the funny to the moving to the vulgar to the slapstick. And at times I was a little bit disconnected from it because I was sort of thinking when I kind of wanted to get involved with the kind of the more serious elements of it, there'd be something happening that would kind of almost kind of detract from that a little bit. Don't get me wrong, this is no kind of um, the final finale of Phantom Menace. It's not that badly kind of constructed indeed, you know. Um, it's been edited together incredibly well, but I just think the perhaps the film's final third did drag a little bit i think it did it does lose a little bit of its focus and you could have done with um getting rid of some of the scenes but overall i thought it um it does flow very well you will kind of get to know and love these people because my favorite character in the film is raul who's kind of the uh, the good looking factory playboy because he's one of these he's quite happy to go along with the workers but he's not really kind of ready to lead them and come the final um, few moments in the film he really does have a very satisfying conclusion but the score by Carlo Ruscielli um, is again really kind of quite enjoyable it does underlie the kind of the more humorous elements of the film and lots of the songs that the workers are singing are also very kind of crude and um, derogatory about those in charge the art direction is also i think quite masterful because obviously i've said before that the factories and the kind of where the workers living are incredibly bad but you also see this kind of the plush side of things where the kind of the factory owners live and it's that kind of opulence which is just completely um polar opposite of how the vast majority of the people are living and the film doesn't kind of like make many references it just shows the fact this kind of massive gulf in wealth when you see salvatore's shack and then see the factory owner's house it's it's kind of obscene this wealth and decadence that he lives in but overall i think the organizer is a a very honest film to a degree because i won't kind of spoil it but 
this film doesn't have the ending that you might think it might have. It's very honest in that respect. I don't think it kind of tries to um, lie about the realities of the world. And of course, you know, let's relate it back to Greece. Well, for all their protesting and their kind of international outrage, whatever happens in Greece, it will not be a great outcome for people. There are going to be an entire generation, you know, lost really, who won't have um, the kind of the prospects in life that we kind of enjoy in other countries. And it's, it's, it's desperately sad in my opinion. And I think the organizer, I don't know, um, if what's going on in the world at the moment kind of, um, play, uh, made criteria and kind of think about putting this film in the collection. It might just be a coincidence, but even however, whatever reason it's in there, I think it's certainly a very relevant and topical work. The film received five Oscar nominations. It was a box office hit, and I can certainly say that I really enjoyed it. It's not my kind of favourite film from that kind of period and um, from Italian cinema. Um, I would say, were I to kind of like uh, give it a, a grade or something like that, I'd probably say something like kind of three and a half out of five or, you know, seven out of ten or something like that. I think if you were to kind of look at wanting to get into Italian cinema, especially neorealist stuff, um, this one might be a little bit further down the list. But what I find about these films is they really do reward a second viewing. And how many films can you honestly say um, that about at the moment? You know, I, when you go back to these, you kind of, I, I do I, I do notice things I haven't seen. I can, you know, kind of take in the stories a bit because sometimes I do get a little bit lost in the kind of technical aspects sometimes and it's kind of good to kind of dig a little bit deeper into the characters so what would be my pick of the month for April well I'm gonna have to go with Alan Brister I think it is one of those films that I know that I will go back to and enjoy again and again and I didn't really kind of like, I didn't obviously want to kind of spoil what happens in it too much, but it's one of those ones where I, I mentioned an episode a while back where I sometimes think films are unnecessarily cruel sometimes, and I don't think that's the case with Alan Brister. I think, like The Organiser, it's a very honest, it's a very um, charming film in many respects that sort of strips away a lot of the artifice of cinema and really just shows you that all you need is uh, an engaging character and a good story to make a decent film. That is going to be it for this episode of the 24 frames cast again my apologies for the delay in getting this one out the next criterion roundup episode will be following quite shortly because i'm going to be away at the end of this month so hopefully um should be with you in the next few days probably about i'd say about probably within a week i will have it out there on the feed um if you want to email me you can at 24 framescast at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at 24 framescast and you can come to the blog at 24 framescast.blogspot.com Many thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.